Hello there. You're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We will also be concluding our mini-series on Avatar The Last Airbender. This time we are diving into the third and final season of this masterpiece of a show. It is book three, Fire. Briefly, we've got some new trailers that came out this past week. The Matrix Resurrections trailer came out, and that had the cool website that you could go to where you could pick the blue pill or the red pill. If you pick the right one, it took you to the trailer, showed you the accurate time from where you were, and then played the trailer. And it was awesome and exciting. It was great marketing for, I mean, the original Matrix was known for its interesting marketing, the whole what is the Matrix thing. And this one is bringing it back. Both the pills brought you to different trailers that would just show you different snippets from the trailer. And then we got the full trailer that got released. Unfortunately, we can't explain it to you. You cannot be explained the Matrix. You just got to see it for yourself. So you go have watch to live that the Matrix. Exactly. Other than that, we had the Hawkeye trailer, which was sort of like a Christmassy kind of theme, which was kind of fun. It's great. Didn't watch it. You didn't see it yet? No. I saw that it, it existed, but I mean, I was that work. It did come out today the day we're yeah. recording this but go watch it after it's fun and then the last trailer that came out was just a short 10 second tre- teaser for olivia wilde's new movie coming out in a year don't worry darling it has florence Pugh and harry styles and they look cute together i did see that they were getting steamy in the shot or mm-hmm. something and isn't yeah, isn't harry styles supposed to be with olivia what's her name isn't that the director olivia wilde yeah aren't they yeah, his character is married to florence Pugh. well but i mean in real life aren't they Yes. Or like dating or something, yeah. Yes, in real Olivia life. Olivia Wilde must have a lot of trust in Harry Styles to put him near Florence Pugh. I know, right? In a loving relationship, because wow. Anyway, that is the news. A bunch of teasers, trailers. Go check that out. For the box office breakdown, the second week of Shang-Chi, it held strong. It had $36 million, which is a 54% drop, which is great, especially compared to Black Widow's 68% drop. It is oh, now yeah. sitting at $145 million domestic. Dylan, your quick thoughts about this. I am ecstatic. I am thrilled because the second week is always the biggest drop percentage-wise that we usually see. And so the drops are going to be typically less and less significant from now on, even though it will still drop each week. So next week will probably be like 20 million. But still, I'm I'm very happy with where we're at so far. It's only the second week. We're doing fantastic. We can make it to 500 million. We can do it. We can do it. We can do it. Keep watching Shang-Chi. Yes. Free guy. Also holding on 5.8 million it is now past the century mark domestically. Doing great. Still going to hold strong. We're going to see it in the top five a lot more. So it's doing great. After that was Malignant, the new James Wan a horror movie. Had 5.6 million. That is its first weekend. That is terrible. It has bombed. Sorry, James Wan. Unless it's doing great on HBO Max, but I don't know if it is. Apparently, it's a very weird, campy movie. Oh. So he went like all out with it. It's a strange affair, apparently. I'm obviously not going to go see it because I'm not a horror person, but I don't know. I guess if you want a weird, strange time at the theaters, go check that out because it needs your support. After Malignant, we have another horror, Candyman with 4.8 million. 
And after that was Jungle Cruise with 2.4. And as we're not going to do any predictions for them because it's probably going to be very minimal what these films get. Shang-Chi is obviously going to be number one at the box office again. But we do have a slew of new films coming out that are more of the prestige type deals, the smaller dramas. Blue Bayou, which we talked about in a trailer talk many, many episodes ago. Cry Macho, the new Clint Eastwood thing. Yeah. And why you? He's too old, man. He's making. He just, is very it, old, but he's still Frank looks, in the mouth. <laughs> it looks bad. It looks bad already, and the fact that it's him made. I mean, it's just. Yeah, it's gone down. His movies have gone down in quality ever since Million Dollar Baby. They've gotten worse and worse and worse. Every time he delivers a line, a bunch of dust comes out of his mouth. <laughs> uh, the Eyes of Tammy Faye with Andrew Garfield and Jessica Chastain is also coming out. So keep your eyes on those films. And now it is time for our main topic for tonight, today, whatever time you're listening to the show. Avatar The Last Airbender, book three, fire. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Yes, and of course we're going to be doing what we've been doing for each of the seasons. We're going to go episode by episode with a particular focus on how the world building and the characters are developed each episode. We're doing it again this time. It's a big season. It's We got a lot to talk about, so strap in, put the speed to 1.8 or 2 times speed, and settle in because we're going to dissect this masterpiece as much as we can. All right, we can start with Season 3, Episode 1, The Awakening. I mean, for me, my initial thoughts when I watched this episode is very much sort of recapping what happened in the previous season, and it's also giving good character development for Aang as he's put in this position where he wants to help, he wants to be the Avatar, but they don't want him to be the Avatar. They want him to stay hidden, they want him to stay quiet. So it's very much a good character development episode for him as he is sort of falling back from that position and trying to hide in plain sight and not be the avatar. And it's a good character development for Zuko who has returned home. He is taking his rightful place as the prince to the fire Lord. And he feel, he also feels sort of left out. He feels like this is not sort of his place, but he's trying to, he's sort of lying to himself, trying to fit into the society because he knows this is what he's always wanted. And we have that great scene where he goes and he visits Zyro. And he's just trying to to shed off that guilt of what he's done. It's good good episodes for those two. Oh, yeah. and Katara is just really mean to Hakoda. Just really yeah. mean to Hakoda for almost no reason. She get she can get very petty and hold a grudge. We'll see that throughout the rest of the season. Um, yeah. But yeah, that is a particularly important note for Katara here. The fact that she is bitter towards Hakoda because... She, because he left uh, the tribe and so left her to go fight in the war effort. 
And she even points out, I mean, you're saying that it's for no reason. And she also points out like, I don't know why I'm mad at you. I know why you had to do it. I know it's justified, but I, it still hurts. And I do think that was an important thing to show. I mean, it, sometimes there are these irrational feelings that come up and they don't make logical sense, but they still happen. She felt abandoned. She felt left alone by her father, whom she needed uh, in the absence of her mother. So it makes sense there. And then there's that parallel to Aang, who also left. She took a very strong caring role for Aang. This episode, we see her doing the healing bending to help him with his wound. Um, and then, of course, he leaves because he's feeling like he needs to restore his honor. He doesn't want to be the avatar that's been disappeared again, right? He was gone for 100 years. We saw what the world came to. He doesn't want to have the world think that he abandoned them once again or failed them once again. So when he leaves, Katara, those same feelings of resentment and bitterness that she felt toward Hakoda when he left, they come back, they come to the surface. And I like that character moment for her. Mm -hmm. um, as for you, uh, what you said about the whole sort of recap thing, we definitely get some world building and seeing Ba Sing Se's fall. I like the callback to the two parents, the parents of the child Hope, that Aang and Guitar and all of them helped get across the Serpent's Pass in season two. We see them like distraught in the beginning of the episode as the Fire Nation marches through the streets of Ba Sing Se. And that was a nice little, uh, it helped really sell how devastating it is that the capital, the one thing that we thought was always going to be secure and safe and enduring has fallen. So tough. We're at a difficult place in the war. Um, we also, as you said about Zuko, we get to see a somewhat softer side of him with him being in the actual relationship with May. It was alluded to in season two, but here they're actually a couple and kissing. They're a complete unit. Um, and as you also said, this is his return home. So he's getting praised alongside Azula. Uh, and we're finally getting closer to that reckoning of him and his father. It, one thing that I think was brilliant about this particular part is, again, we see softer sides of Azula, but they're still completely masked in her being calculating and being cunning and being self-serving. Like the whole thing about telling her father that Zuko was the one who slayed the Avatar, it helped Ozai accept Zuko. And so it was it was a net benefit for Zuko initially, but it was also Asula playing her cards right and making sure that if the Avatar did somehow survive, the blame doesn't fall to her. She has Zuko as her scapegoat and all the hatred and disappointment will come to Zuko and away from her. So mm -hmm. that was just brilliant like you initially think i mean you don't you're sort of in zuko's place where you're like what game is she playing here why is she being nice and then you find out and you're like oh my god she's so ruthless she's so good yeah i will say this this rewatching this season this time i learned something new in that and we'll bring it up again time and time throughout the season you'll see it over and over again and i'll point it out ozai is just kind of stupid like he's not he's not smart, he's not a tactician, he's just like the powerful fire lord, and he's a very powerful bender, but he's not at all the brains behind the operation. It's one hundred percent Azula. Azula is the craft master. Azula and other people are like the craft masters behind Ozai's everything. Like he's just kind of stupid. And I'll bring it up. It'll come up and I'll point it out. But there's a lot of stupid things that he just does. Gotcha. All right, moving on to episode two. The headband, also known as Footloose in Avatar, 
this one I really appreciate because it's where we get a lot of world building related to the Fire Nation. We get to see Aang go undercover, take on the name Kuzan, go to Fire Nation school, and we get to learn a lot about that culture from them doing their own Pledge of Allegiance in the Fire Nation Oath, saying, I will fight for Fire Lord Ozai, to the dynamic between the homeland Fire Nation people and the colonies that they've established over in the Earth Kingdom, the history, the revisionist history that they have, where they're telling their kids that it was an actual equal war between the Air Nomads and the Fire Nation, and obviously the pacifist Air Nomads did not have a military. They were not capable of fighting back, and the Fire Nation just completely genocided them. Um, and so we see Aang initially try to point that out uh, and then he gets shut down for that because he needs to fit in. So he wisely does so. But it's just a very interesting look into how the Fire Nation operates. It both humanizes a lot of the characters in the Fire Nation, but you also get to see where some of these mindsets and where some of these people like for Zuko, for instance, I mean, he was in that same place in season one where he was getting fed all this propaganda about his nation and it being glorious and their war on the other people mm-hmm. being something of value. And we see that come up later in season three as well. Um, the lies about what the Fire Nation tells themselves, um, the lies they tell themselves about what they're doing. So I really like all that stuff. And again, the footloose part of it it's great. is fantastic. It's beautiful. Anything that makes fun of footloose is fantastic. I it's know, a very, but... very simple plot, but <laughs> a town bent hell bent on preventing dancing and the kids just wanting to cut loose and foot loose and it's just fantastic <laughs> it is and it and it makes sense for both the world and for ang's character that mm-hmm. he's i mean we know he's a goofball we know he likes fun um so it makes sense that his impact here beyond just like the bending and saving the world and whatnot like he does have an influence in just his personality and spreading joy to the world by helping these kids let loose a little bit and it's also interesting to see how the fire nation tries to really put a damper on dancing in particular that would come up later in season three, but the relationship between dancing and the original purpose of firebending and the original ways of firebending is just very interesting that that became something that was suppressed in the new imperialist fire nation um, shows how they really lost their way from their roots. But yeah, overall the whole Aang stuff is great. Good comedy with, Sokka and Katara mm-hmm. being Wang Fire and Sapphire Fire. Wang Fire! <laughs> That's so lovely. Um, we get like phrases and slang, Flamio, Hot Man, which comes back mm-hmm. time and time again, which is fun. Um, so, yeah, overall, a very solid uh, lore and character based episode. Not too much on the plot, but still lovely, all the same. I like seeing Aang's like connection to the Fire Nation, seeing as how he was there a hundred years ago before they were big baddies, and so he has like an understanding of their old culture and when it, there was self-expression. So he has those slangs like Flamio Hotman. He takes his friend's name Kuzan when he joins the school. He teaches them Fire Nation dances at when they're doing the dance, like, and they're all like loving watching him do it, and they have all these bands. The, the watching the bands play they're playing like fire nation music specifically and he's like teaching them their own culture in a way because it's been suppressed for so long i think that's a lot of fun to see uh and of course watching ang guitar dance is fantastic some of the choreography like to animate that i feel like they probably had to actually choreograph that in real life film it as reference and then animate it and so it's because it's just beautifully animated the choreography between the two of them is wonderful and i love watching them dance together 
yeah, as a behind the scenes note, that is something they did a lot, especially with the martial arts, is they mm -hmm. would do that thing where they had people do it in real life and then they would have to draw yeah. it from that. Um, and you're right, that was a beautiful moment. This episode does further the Katara Aang relationship because we see her get a little bit jealous when he's going and asking a Fire Nation girl, I think Anji was her name, to dance. And then later in the episode, he gives him a kiss on the cheek. So that furthers their little relationship. Uh, this episode is also important for Zuko and Iroh. This, I believe, is the episode where Zuko does actually visit Iroh. Maybe he did in the first one. By the time the first episode, he just like was looking at the prison, you but didn't actually right. do it. I feel like this one, he did go to it. Um, and we see Azula warns him against doing this. And this is, I think, another way that the show is trying to do a little bit of humanization for her. Because I don't see what the ulterior motive would have been into having Zuko reveal, into tricking Zuko to reveal that, oh yeah, he is visiting Iroh. And then she says, hey, don't do that. People may think you're plotting with him or something along those lines. There didn't seem to be any leverage that she would gain by letting Zuko know, hey, that's probably a risky thing, which he already knew. But her showing that, hey, people are able to anticipate you doing this action and may think that there's nefarious purposes behind it. It seemed like that was her genuinely looking out for him. But I don't know, maybe you saw that there was some other. I think maybe she motive. just she realizes that she needs Zuko around and on her side for the time being, like not always, but for the time being, he needs to not be in the bad grace of the Fire Lord. He needs to be in the good grace and just be there, be a prince and serve his purpose. And then eventually she can get rid of him later. But this is like this is just like not the way to do it. And so she's just trying to prevent him from falling into that trap. Interesting. Anyway, we do see, so Zuko visits Iroh twice. The first one, he's very angry at Iroh being silent to him. The second time, he tries a softer approach. He's like, please give me guidance. But Iroh once again turns away from Zuko, doesn't say a word to him. And so Zuko's lashing out. And he is now fully convinced that the Avatar is alive out there because he made the connection between the spirit water that uh, Katara had and the possibility to save Aang from that wound. So he goes and enlists an unnamed man who will soon be known as Combustion Man. But he's got a sick tattoo on his eye, on his forehead, his third eye. And then he's got like an iron arm and leg. Man looks super cool. And he's an assassin. And now he's out to kill the Avatar. And that is episode two. Yeah. Now we're on episode three. The Painted Lady. This is probably my second least favorite episode of the season just because it is kind of filler and it is not serving the overall story as much as all the other episodes are. It's mostly serving for character development and world building, which is important is what we're talking about. But I do care about episodes that talk about that, like push forward this overall narrative that the show is trying to give. And this episode doesn't do it very well. It shows a lot of... Um, the impact of fire nation industrialization and how that has sort of like destroyed the nature of the area. The whole uh, lake has been turned into sludge and swamp from the refinery that is nearby. And the people are suffering because of the fire nation. People are suffering because of the government of the fire nation. And so Katara feels it is her or is her duty to serve these people, even though they are fire nation people. So she takes on the role of the painted lady, which is, I think it's 
a well-told story, and I do find it very fascinating, very interesting to watch, especially seeing Katara's development and Aang, like, not even reluctantly helping her, just, like, overwhelmingly joyous that she's doing what she's doing and helping her immediately. And so I like seeing their cooperation. I like to see the the planning. And then I do love the last two scenes, the scene where they're actually fighting off the Fire Nation soldiers, and she's, like, embracing this painted lady... Uh, style and and they use all the different elements of their collective bending to create that illusion that she is the painted lady i love that scene and i love the very very end when the real painted lady shows up if the real painted lady didn't show up and they had that cool scene where she just says thank you it would probably be my least favorite episode but it's just so hauntingly beautiful that the painted lady is real it is an actual spirit and she's grateful for katara's work in uh fixing and helping the the river Yes, I agree. I think in terms of world building, as you mentioned, the whole industrialization aspect is important, but also we're seeing this connection between the spirit world and the natural world and how it's in all likelihood that spirit was probably being kept down or suppressed because of how the nature was being damaged by that pollution Mm -hmm. uh, from the metal refinery that was nearby. So I like that they reemphasize that part. Like there is such a important connection between the spirit world and the natural world. I also, as you mentioned, love how Katara, her compassion, one of her greatest and most important attributes is on full display here. This is a fire nation village and people like Sokka, they're like, yo, let's just, we don't have time to help out these people. We don't have time to help out every village and trouble that we come across. But she is not of that mindset. She wants to help them since she knows that she can. She delivers that line, I will never, ever turn my back on people who need me. Uh, And then Sokka, when she realizes how determined she is to live up to that, he lets her know that, hey, whenever you need me, I will be there as well. And so that's beautiful to see. Like Aang initially supports Katara as well. The two of them go and destroy that industrial plant. Um, And then, as you said, the whole gang works together in order to create that ruse of the Painted Lady. This is one of the episodes that uh, purely because of just the look of Katara in the Painted Lady, it is one of those that stuck in my mind. Yeah, of course. Um, so for that reason, I, I really like it because it is a well-told story. And as you said, it doesn't drive the main plot forward. Uh, season three in the first half does take more of that episodic approach that we had in season mm-hmm. one. But I like it because we are so much more in tune with these characters now and the world is so much established that they can just do new and interesting things and really challenge the characters and really mm-hmm. expand upon the world. We'll get to that in a later uh, season one for, or season three, first half episode. But I am still of the mindset that there is no filler in bossing. Say it's just all good. It's all amazing. Any episode of avatar does something either character wise, lore wise or plot wise, of course that makes it essential. And so while I can see how this one may be one of the weaker ones for you, um, I still think I hold it in high regard. So it's a good one for me. Our next episode is season three, episode four, Sokka's Master. Dude, I love this episode. I love this episode <laughs> so much. Everything about it is absolutely fantastic. We spent this whole show with a lot of character development for all the characters and episodes specifically for different characters. And there's never been one episode for specifically Sokka only. Like, there's always been 
more like character development within Sokka's story and Sokka developing over a long period of time. There's never been an episode that's just Sokka and only Sokka and no other character for anyone else. And what they do with this episode, what are you, are you debating me? What episode <laughs> well, was, is there? What episode? Well, because I was going to say there's been definitely moments where he and his arc was emphasized. Yeah. Like yeah. Bato of the Water Tribe, for instance. But then you're right. There is a lot of elements that like Aang had a big arc in that one yeah. as well. This one is purely Sokka. Like everyone else like is only just Sokka. on the audience. Like yes. They're on the sidelines with us. We have like just a big Sokka episode, Sokka moment. And the way they do it is fantastic because he's going to train under this great sword master and they could have taken him and changed his character a lot, which would have been unrealistic. And instead they morph the training and have him adapt to that training in his own way and become uniquely himself. He overcomes each obstacle in his own way. However, he sees how to do it in a very Sokka manner. He paints his face to sign <laughs> his name. He, When he has to draw the, the scene quickly, he puts in a little rainbow even though it's not there and it's all cartoonish. Like It's a very Sokka way to do things, but it all has an, like it all imprints onto him as a character and it all sticks with him. And you see like this training that he's receiving from Pion Dao is very tailored to him in a very good way. And he learns these lessons quickly and he becomes a very good swordsman because of it, because he's able to learn quickly and because he's able to take his own way and his own approach to the, the training that is being given to him. He's able to become uniquely himself which I think is absolutely wonderful because the whole episode he's talking about how he's not a bender. He has nothing that is uniquely him. And what is uniquely him is his personality and who he is as a person. It doesn't matter that he's not a, a bender. It doesn't matter that he's, he, he can't move rocks or water. Like he says, like he can plan things out. He can come up with solutions to problems and he is a master strategist. And he takes those attributes and he applies it to his, his sword training uh, and, and becomes like a master swordsman within an episode. And it's believable the way that he does it. And I think that's incredible. Also, Meteorite Sword is awesome. Wow. Space you, Sword? No, space so Sword good. is fantastic. Yeah, I love that so much. I in I have thought many times of like, there should just be more, like whenever meteorites come down, things like that, in fantasy worlds in particular, I'm like, why don't they make swords out of that? Like you have in Game of Thrones, Dragonglass, things like that. I'm like, why isn't there more fantasy stuff that pulls from meteorites? I will say, I forgot that this happened in Sokka's Master, where he did get his meteorite sword. And that's so cool. I think in reality, Meteor the Rock is a very brittle sort of material. And so I don't think it would entirely work as a sword, but I could be wrong. Right. But I'm saying in like fantasy. In fantasy, yes, yes. They should do it more often. But in reality, like, because there's things like Game of Thrones that are trying to kind of be reality based as scientifically possible outside of the fantasy elements but i mean yeah, yeah either way they, they still, still good super cool that avatar did do that they gave him a whole on space orb other things i mean you did a beautiful rendition of why Sokka's character arc in this episode was incredible it's in utilizing all of his resourcefulness um that we have seen throughout the series but then he finally gets that validation from First, the gang, which I really love that they included that. Like everybody consoles Sock and lets them know that they don't see him as unspecial or anything like that because he's a non-bender. They recognize his worth and his contributions to the team, but he really needed to get that validation from a swords master, like someone like Pian Dao. Um, and so when he finally gets that, he's gained some more confidence in himself and 
and what he can bring to the table. So that's beautiful. We also get an important moment world building wise with the White Lotus. We see at the end, Piandao gives them that uh, I show chip, revealing that he is the White Lotus. The characters don't know what that means, but we know what that means. And that's so cool. Uh, yes, dramatic irony. It is. Also, Iroh gets jacked in this episode. Dude, he is ripped. <laughs> and it's the, it's the, for a show to have a secondary plot line, this is the best secondary <laughs> plot line you could possibly have. It's just Iroh working out, and then at the very end, he just takes off his shirt and is just cut from the gods. It's, it's, inc- <laughs> it's just an incredible development over one episode. I, I love the idea of Iroh getting just incredibly buff. Yes, for sure. And I love the way also, I mean, he's clearly pretending to be senile or deranged whenever he's seen by the guards. Yes. And then whenever they go away, he just gets jacked in the dark. It's incredible stuff. He's very uh, and of course, that comes back around later on. Indeed. Next, we have season three, episode five, The Beach, which is also crucial in terms of character development. Um, this one... We get to spend some time with our Fire Nation villains, Zuko, Azula, Mei, Tai Lee. They all go on vacation to Ember Island, to the beach. And we also, I mean, we do get to see the gang and they have their run-in with the Combustion Man. Um, but that is certainly not the most significant part of this episode. No. It's all about the, the Fire Nation peeps chilling at the beach. And what I love about this is this is the episode where we truly get more of that humanization of Azula. You yes. see that she's completely socially inept in normal situations. When she's playing volleyball, she can't help herself but to analyze the opponents, see them as enemies, try to exploit their weaknesses. That was just a great scene when they were doing the volleyball. Mm-hmm. Um, she is incapable of flirting. I am haunted and scarred by the because it's so sharp. <laughs> that moment is hilarious. Um, and we see an interesting reaction or interaction between her and Ty Lee um, is her trying to point out like, Oh, I don't see why these boys aren't taking a liking to me. They always get terrified. Ty Lee's like, just all you need to do is laugh at whatever they say. Um, And then of course she bursts out laughing way too loud. Everyone stops, looks over at her and we see just time and time again, she's socially inept here. But later on, when she's dealing with Zuko, and she goes up to the the old house, the old beach house that the family had, Zuko's in there. He's depressed because he and Mage just had a fight because he's too hot-headed and impatient mm-hmm. and also jealous. Yeah. She pulls him away from there to come down to the beach where the rest of them are and just hang out there, which is another thing that... I can't see any other motive here other than just doing a genuinely kind thing for Zuko. Earlier in that interaction with Ty Lee, she hurt Ty Lee's feelings by saying, oh, you're a tease, like, you're easy. That's why boys are putting their attention on you. Um, and then Ty Lee got sad. And then Azula apologized. I think you could read that interaction as Azula being manipulative. She knows yeah. that Ty Lee is someone who's going to be able to help her get closer to this goal of having boys find her attractive. So she does what she needs to do. She says the nice words to make Ty Lee happy again. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one, again, there didn't seem to be any other benefit to 
to doing something nicer, Zook and be like, hey, this place isn't good for you. It's putting you in a bad headspace. Let's go hang out by the beach. Um, so I think that was a big humanization moment. And then we also have the whole campfire, campfire therapy session where we see Azula after everyone else does their whole thing, gives their spiel. She says that her mother saw her as a monster. She said, it's true, but it still hurts. Like she recognizes that that was a thing that happened. Um, she believes it herself, but there's a, a twinge of us realizing, okay, there is some feeling there. There is some hurt there, even though she tries to conceal it and mask it as a joke and play it off and be like, oh, everyone's just performing right now. There's a little bit of humanity that we get to see in Azula here. Um, so what do you think about that? And what do you think about the the other therapy sessions we got with each of the other characters? So I'm I'm always 50-50 on humanizing Azula because I feel like she's a very hard character to humanize. And I understand what they're trying to do in saying that everybody has good in them and everybody has bad in them. And it, it can be accentuated in different ways for different reasons. And I understand that, but the whole of season two, Azula has just been the big baddie. And like she's been bad this entire time up until this point. Very few humanizing moments for her. And so to see her be very humanized in this episode, like instantaneously, and then to go back to viewing her as kind of like the conniving uh, sociopath that she is in the rest of the, the season is a little bit of a, a hard 360 to make in one episode. So I always go back and forth on it because I do like what they do with their character in this episode. It's just it is a hard transition to go from one to the other and then back. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of the campfire therapy session. I feel like as a just a dialogue perspective, it is very much just explaining feelings because you only have half an hour and you have so much time. So for like May and for Ty Lee is just saying what their problems are and for Azula too. But I like the way they build up to Zuko and they're putting the pressure on him, and then he just explodes and says he's angry at himself. For so long I thought that if my dad accepted me, I'd be happy. I'm back home now, my dad talks to me. <laughs> he even thinks I'm a hero. Everything should be perfect, right? I should be happy now, but I'm not. I'm angrier than ever, and I don't know why. There's a simple question you need to answer then. Who are you angry at? No one. I'm just angry. Yeah, who are you angry at, Zuko? Everyone. I don't know. Is it dad? No, no. Your uncle? Me? No, 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 no. Then who? Who are you angry at? Answer the question, Zuko. Talk to us. Come on, answer the question. Come on, answer it. I'm angry at myself. I do love that moment. Just because it does feel more like an actual therapeutic thing where you're trying to get to uh, a truth that he's not aware of at this point, at least not consciously aware of yet, because he really does know who he's mad at until he explodes and there's that realization all hitting at one point. So I like seeing that moment. I think it's powerful. I'm just not the biggest fan of this episode. It's not my favorite from the season. I feel like it's just a lot of say it or show it, don't say it, but they're saying it. I feel like showing is more powerful. But it's fun. It's good to see some good humor from Azula. Very odd. but <laughs> For sure. Um, I'm going to push back a little bit. I do think, I mean, it is still somewhat of a kid's show. So 
it's not entirely the most organic way that they arrive at each of these people spilling their guts to each other. Um, but I still like it overall because at some point, I mean, we can say show don't tell, but at some point, I mean, people do need to tell some things. And for instance, for Zuko here, it's really important that we see him verbalize that he is angry at himself. There is no one else that he can direct his anger towards anymore because ostensibly he has everything he wants. He has his father's approval. He's back in the Fire Nation. He's a prince. He's no longer banished. So everything should be okay on paper, but it's clearly not. So we needed to see him come to terms with that himself. Yeah. We also, throughout the episode, though, we see we are shown each of the things that these people talk about, right? We see May being very passionless and unexpressive throughout the whole thing. Uh, and then we see the revelation, okay, this is why she was like that, because her father's political career meant that she couldn't really express herself um, for fear of bad attention, things like that. Tai Lee, we see that she is really bubbly and I wouldn't say attention seeking. I mean, they framed it that way. Um, but I mean, she does enjoy the attention and we see why that happened. Oh, she came from a family where she was one of just many different siblings. And so she wants to stand out. She went to the circus for that reason. Um, she proudly accepts the circus freak label in this, um, which I think is a nice moment. Mm. So I think them saying these things to each other, it is somewhat contrived in a way like they had to continuously remind us, oh, mysterious things happen at the beach. You reveal yourselves in order to make us buy into the fact that they would all yes. of a sudden start spilling um, again their guts to each other. But I think the fact that they did do that setup and we are shown through the interactions they have with each other and then in that social setting at the party with the other normal teenagers, I think they did enough work to um, to merit this. I think um, they did. Portion. I think they did the setup work well. I just think punk like punctuating that setup with just dialogue where they explain it outwardly is a little too. Uh, I don't know. It's a little too excessive. But I mean, it is a kids show. Explaining these things word for word is a little necessary at sometimes because it is complicated themes for kids to handle. I just feel like it could have been done better. Gotcha. All right. Moving on to season three, episode six, the Avatar and the Fire Lord. And it's interesting. We're going like back and forth here on we're trading episodes that we sort of liked and entirely like. This one wasn't the best for me, which what? is weird because I really liked the idea of it. I really liked the beginning of it. I like that this is sort of the third in the trilogy of the Aang Zuko parallels where we learn their backstories. Um, like the first one, the storm, we literally learn their specific backstories. Then in bitter work, we learn the philosophies of the bending elements. And then here we learn the philosophies of what we find out to be their grandparents or well, Zuko's grandparents. And then of course the reincarnation of Aang Roku. Um, so I like the idea that they're going here. I like the world building that they go for, how we learn Sozin and uh, Roku were friends initially. Dragons were existing here and they both had them. Roku trained, got all the elements in something like 12 years or something like that. Um, and then had to return back, had his wedding. Sozin is like, yo, what if we conquered the world? And Roku said, what if we didn't? 
don't do that. Don't even think about that. And then Sozin did that a little bit, started establishing colonies. Roku tried to stop him by destroying the throne room, um, but spared him, didn't kill him, which of course bit him in the butt, because later on when Roku was at a volcano where his home was, it erupts, he has to try to fight it, save the people, allow them to flee. Sozin sees this from wherever he was, comes over, helps Roku initially, but then betrays Roku, realizing that, oh, if Roku's dead, that'll allow me to accomplish my plans for expansion and conquering the world. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to just let him perish. Um, very vicious. But while all that like sounds good, I think I just, I wanted more of it. And I, I know that that couldn't come in the 20 minute ish episode that they have. So I like the glimpses of this story that we got. But I wish there were more in beyond the very initial part of Roku and Sozin being friends. I didn't like the development of like Sozin arriving at this place of where he wanted to conquer the world and then starting to conquer it. Um, I, I don't know. There was just something missing, which made this feel weaker to me than certainly the previous Aang Zuko episodes. Uh, and then overall in this season, just one of the weaker ones. But what do you, what did you think about this episode? Why do you like it? This time I'm going to push back on you a little bit. Do it. So I I will admit that if there had been scenes, glimpses of like when Roku is training for those 12 years, you could see glimpses of Sozin becoming more into his power as the Fire Lord and learning more about the depravity of certain other areas and, and wanting like like getting that sort of mental state of wanting to quote unquote spread the 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 wealth of the fire nation to the other uh, kingdoms mm -hmm. like if you had had scenes like that it would have been more effective but i mean it's just a fantastic episode i love seeing roku and gyatso have a relationship and and you have that setup of uh friendships can go beyond lifetimes i think that's wonderful uh i like learning about roku's entire history of him being able to train with these elements in a very easy way as compared to ang who's had to do it in the middle of a war solving other problems roku's had a relatively easy training period um i like the the whole dynamic of this episode is setting up the idea that roku failed in his mission to stop the fire lord because he spared him and so you're getting that layering of the idea that ang has to defeat the fire lord but then when you watch the rest of the season, you learn like sort of retroactively that the real lesson is that the Avatar needed to work with a Fire Lord that could work with him and that together the two of them could create a balance in the world. And so that sort of hammers in that lesson of Aang sparing Ozai later in the season that we'll get to and Zuko taking over the Fire Lord position and the two of them working together to end the war rather than ang just killing the fire lord and ending it in that way because violence just begets more violence so i like that idea because roku and all the other avatars are of the opinion like just end it it's been 100 years end it kill him end it we get that in the final episode we get that whole conversation with them and this is really the beginning of roku's part of that and saying i failed to stop the fire lord you have to 
succeed where I have failed. And I love the Zuko part of it where he's learning about his grandfather and he finds out that his grandfather's final years of his life were spent hunting down Aang in the same way that Zuko was doing it and that his drive is what sort of caused him to falter out and not accomplish what he wanted to accomplish and sort of just die because of that desire to find and put out the avatar. And so you see that this is sort of a thing that has descended down into Zuko that sort of drive, but for different reasons and him re it's like that subtle realization for Zuko that he can't continue this sort of drive to be that sort of fire Lord because he knows that one day he will be the fire Lord most likely. So I, I just, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I love the betrayal of Sozin to Roku. I think it's so heartbreaking Mm-hmm. And I think it's heartbreaking when Roku's dragon surrounds him and they get buried in the ashes and he dies. I just think it's all the animation is beautiful in the whole volcano sequence. And I do love that Zuko and Aang are having parallel stories once again, learning about the two, the the previous Avatar and the Fire Lord. And that sets up them being the Avatar and the Fire Lord in the, in the finale. I just think it's all great setup for the rest mm-hmm. of the season. Right. I do like some of those points you brought up, like, for instance, Zuko realizing the end of the scroll of Zosin's autobiography, where it just ends in him being like, oh, I'm chasing the Avatar. And then that's it. Like, that's the end of his life. That's just all it became. I do like that part. One other thing that I'm conflicted about is Zuko being gifted that, like, ornamental crown prince hairpiece thing. So once again, like, reaffirm, oh, part of your destiny is becoming the Fire Lord. That's fine. But the revelation that Avatar Roku is his grandfather and how that's supposed to symbolize, oh, there's this internal battle for his destiny, uh, which way he's going to go. Like that to me didn't, I think, work as well as they were probably trying to intend it to. It's like the things that Zuko ends up doing for the rest of the series were going to be the right thing, whether or not Roku was related to him. And I, again, I see it's another piece of him being like, oh, the avatar isn't so different from me. I come from that person who was like, oh, this mortal enemy um, to Sozin. And Aang is this mortal enemy to me. But they started out as friends. I'm related to Roku. So maybe I'm not that different from Aang. Like I can sort of get that. But I don't know. The way they framed it as, oh, part of your destiny is inextricably tied to your relationship to Roku, like being a descendant of him in a way. It, I don't know. I just don't particularly like that. Well, Zuko should have been able to arrive at that point without that other stuff. And I like, again, like the whole, like clear the sense of your family, like right the wrongs that have happened in the dynasty of the Fire Nation. But I don't know. That should have been the goal and should have been a strong enough motivation for him, even if he didn't have the blood of the avatar who was supposed to restore balance to the world and all that stuff. Like, I don't know, having that be like, Oh, that is a part of your destiny too. That's a part of your bloodline. Even if it wasn't, he still should have been doing those things. So I wish they would have just left that bit of it off or they could still have the revelation, but they'd leave that particular framing of it mm-hmm. off. So that's more about Zuko again, like finding his own destiny. Cause that felt more like, Oh, you're getting told part of your destiny because of your bloodline is to do this, this, and this. The whole thing I was trying to teach him is find your own destiny, make your own choices. So I know that to me sort of conflicted with some of the teachings I was giving in the previous season. So mm, 
again, it's, it's iffy for me, but there are a lot of strong elements to it for sure. Okay. Let's move on to season three, episode seven, the runaway. This is also lower on my list. It's, oh my God. It's, it's high on my list. What is oh, happening? <laughs> this one's right, down through. low on me. Um, I feel like for me, again, this is another one where the overall story isn't being put forward a lot. And it's mostly character development for Toph and Katara's relationship, which I do love to see because uh, we had that great moment. We, we've had a lot of fights between the two of them. We had a great moment in the Tales of Bossing Say episode where they had their little short story where they got to be closer together and have that little moment. And having any moment between the two of them is always nice because they are kind of uh, opposites of one another and they are sort of pitted against each other quite a lot at the show. And this is an episode where they can kind of resolve those tensions in an overall way. I will say the one part of this episode that stands out above the rest of the episode is... The, the dialogue that Sokka has with Toph on the cliffside where Sokka talks about how Katara has taken over kind of metaphorically this role of his mother and being so caring and so responsible. She's always got to be right about everything and she gets all bossy and involved and in your business. Yeah, I don't know how you can deal with it. Actually, in a way, I rely on it. I don't understand. When our mom died, that was the hardest time in my life. Our family was a mess. But Katara, she had so much strength. She stepped up and took on so much responsibility. She helped fill the void that was left by our mom. I guess I never thought about that. I'm gonna tell you something crazy. I never told anyone this before. But honestly, I'm not sure I can remember what my mother looked like. It really seems like my whole life, Katara's been the one looking out for me. She's always been the one that's there. And now, when I try to remember my mom, Katara's is the only face I can picture. The truth is, sometimes Katara does act motherly, but that's not always a bad thing. She's compassionate and kind, and she actually cares about me. You know, the real me. That's more than my own mom. Which is a hard topic to talk about, because it's kind of a weird perspective to view your sister as sort of a motherly figure but he's very open and he's very honest about it and it's very powerful in seeing him talk about how motherly she is to him and Toph having that kind of connection as well saying like you know she's never had a good relationship with her parents so it's hard to see anybody in that role and Katara is very motherly in a good way and it's hard for her to sort of connect to that in a way and then having Katara have that moment where she's listening to them secretly not knowing that where they don't know that she's listening, she has those tears down her eyes because she's sort of like just finally understanding from their perspective without any kind of bias in the way. I think that's a great scene. Everything else, though, is just set up to that scene and then the follow through after that scene to me. And it's just not as much of a go for me as that that one incredible scene. I suppose. But okay, to talk about some other things in this episode, we had some solid world building in terms of the massive Ozai statue oh, yeah. and showing I love infinity that. there. That's so cool. Um, we also He's just see... breathing fire on that <laughs> statue. Just obnoxiously um, in the middle of the town square, shooting fire out both fists, head up, his mouth. breathing fire. <laughs> yeah. Just obnoxious. Uh, we also see this is somewhat important because we get the combustion man. We get to see how his third eye, if that gets injured in any way, that's going to throw off his powers. That's crucial. 
We also see the extent of like the variations on earth bending. So wood bending is an absolute no go. Metal bending can do word bending, no, but you can sweat bend. Katara is able to work up a sweat and then use that for her water bending in order to escape the cell that she and Toph are in. So that's, I like that, that we get more like limitations on what we can do, what we cannot do. Um, and then as you were mentioning, I mean, to have that scene work, you need to have the setup for it. So why are you saying the setup is not that great? We get to see Toph and the gang like go and do this gaming work, which is just like fun and games. But then you get to see the actual argument between Katara and Toph. We see their two opposing mindsets. I was like, this isn't really hurting anybody. I'm just scamming the scammers. This is just us having fun. Katara, of course, is seeing it as a way that they could potentially be put in danger because it could draw attention to the gang. Um, but I think that's essential. Again, I think it's important to have their two opposing uh, mindsets clash here. And that makes the them making up the Katara overhearing Toph sympathizing with her and realizing, oh, this is probably where Katara is coming from. And then Katara makes the gesture where she wasn't going to apologize, but she's like, yo, let's go have fun in games. Let's go do more of the scamming stuff. And that sort of backfires on them. I think mm-hmm. that's really sweet. And then the ending, I'm talking about, oh, that was the one great scene. Bro, the ending, when Toph becomes very vulnerable and she's like, Katara, I need your help. I want you to help write this letter that I'm going to send to the parents. It furthers two of Toph's character arcs, one being the whole asking for help and seeking help from others is okay. Because, you know, she's been very independent and all that. Remember that from the whole talk Iroh had with her? We also have the whole mother or her parent thing. Um, she does care about her parents, despite the sort of the situation they put her in um, and the way they were very coddling to her. We saw that when she was going to go visit them at the end of season two. And we see that when she was in the cell with Katara, she realized how running away from them probably really, really hurt them. Uh, and even though she feels like running away was the right thing to do, it was something she needed to do. She didn't want to hurt them. I mean, that's just a sad side effect of what she had to do. And so I think it's beautiful that at the end, she trusts Katara to to write this letter for her. It's beautiful. I think it's so beautiful. I love that episode. And there's criminal, uh, criminally small number of Toph-centric episodes. So I think this was essential. Mm-hmm. I love the way it occurred. It, this is definitely one of the higher ones for me. Again, all episodes in this show are essential. Like That's I would true. never <laughs> argue against that. And I also love every single episode in this whole show, start to finish. What I'm just saying that as a is comparable to the other episodes in the season, this one is lower on my list. I just think the opening flash forward is a little bit silly in context of the seriousness of what the episode could have been. And I think the the sort of um montage of them cheating it's just drawn on a little too long. I understand that it's probably to fill in time because the overall plot of the episode is relatively short as compared to what a lot of other episodes are trying to cram into 20 minutes. And so they are trying to fill out that time and do good setup for how much of a cheater Toph has become and how much money they're trying to make here. I understand that. But like, I feel like it just 
it, it goes on a little too long with the montage and it seems i don't know what are the odds that they have a wooden prison cell in the fire nation <laughs> in the fire know, nation what it seems like a re- cuz everyone else they're putting in that wooden cell is from the fire nation look and look. so they're most likely <laughs> fire benders why no, no. would why would the fire nation construct a wooden cell it just seems like a bad idea not every fire nation person is a firebender and look True. all the metal went to the ozai statue so they only had wood that was stone over. that was, was a stone it? statue yes a lot of metal all statue. the metal went to the to the, the war effort industrial plants that they had yeah so they just had to use the wood <laughs> i don't know i feel like it was just doing a lot of mediocre work to tell a, a beautiful story for Toph. And I feel like it could have been done better once again, but I'm still enjoying myself when I'm watching the episode and I'm still having a good time. because it's still an amazing show. Yeah. Again, and that these brings are us... minor nitpicks. Like, yes, of, of course. Amazing things. So yeah, it's just, if we didn't do minor nitpicks, it would just be compliments. Yeah. Like through and through. Uh, completely on to the next episode season three episode eight the puppet master can we both agree that this is an amazing episode oh yes you know we reached we reached balance this is a great episode (laughs) i think from now to the rest of the to the end of the season will probably be balanced for the most part is my it's gonna be my assumption for sure i just it's just so dark it's just so surprisingly (laughs) dark the rest of the show the rest of the show just flirts with being dark and sort of hauntingly horrifying. And this episode just dives right in head first, full, full on. It has the great setup of them telling spooky stories in the forest. And then, them, and then Toph being like, I hear people screaming under the mountain, which is a very scary thing for her to say. Being the person who can see into the mountain and saying that she can hear people screaming in the mountain. It's a very scary thing to hear in a kid's show. And then they have this whole bit where they're just walking through the town. They're having a good time. They meet Hama. She's a little creepy, but it's okay. And then they find out she's a waterbender and everything's fine, right? Everything is normal. They're having a good time. They're having a, a, a good meal. Hama seems like a normal person. And then it just goes fully in the opposite directions and just goes completely into a, a horror kind of genre for an episode, which is just so surprising for them to do. And to pair that with development for Katara as a character for her, because she like she has she's the only waterbender of the Southern tribe that she knows of. And for her to meet another Southern waterbender and to try and connect with her and to find out that she's such an evil person to find out that she's so horrifying is just such good character development for her because she is finally trying to associate with her Southern heritage, but then being forced to disconnect with it as a way to fight Hama. Like she has to sort of uh, like unconnect, unsee her as a Southern waterbender and see her only as a bloodbender and how horrifying she is. And I love the bit at the end where she has to bloodbend Hama in order to stop her from effectively killing (laughs) Aang and Sokka. Right. Having them charge full speed at each other. Like it was just going to be Aang. He was going to get skewered by Sokka's yeah, sword. <laughs> yeah. The only way to save Aang's entire life, the Avatar's life is to bloodbend and having her have to make that choice is just incredible. But my favorite scene in the whole episode is when they're out in the field of lilies and Hama is telling Ooh. her that there's, there's 
water in everything. There's water in more things than you could possibly imagine. You have to learn how to draw the water out. And she does the the swing around and just takes all the water out of the fire lilies. Ooh, that is haunting. These flowers are beautiful. They're called fire lilies. They only bloom a few weeks a year, but they're one of my favorite things about living here. And like all plants and all living things, they're filled with water. I met a waterbender who lived in a swamp and could control the vines by bending the water inside. You can take it even further. That was incredible. It's a shame about the lilies, though. They're just flowers. When you're a waterbender in a strange land, you do what you must to survive. Tonight, I'll teach you the ultimate technique of waterbending. It can only be done during the full moon, when your bending is at its peak. But isn't that dangerous? I thought people have been disappearing around here during the full moon. Oh, Katara. Two master waterbenders beneath a full moon? I don't think we have anything to worry about. It is. That was gorgeous. So yeah, a lot of great world building elements here. As you mentioned, we learn more of the Fire Nation raids on the Southern tribe, how that the main purpose of that was in order to uh, abduct any waterbenders. And so that gives us more context for Katara being a waterbender in the Southern Water Tribe. That's why she was the only one there. She was the last waterbender. Um, and we see what became of those waterbenders that were abducted in Hama. Uh, we also learn, as you just said, you can draw water from the air, water from, uh, we saw it with the vines, but here she's pulling water out from the fire lilies, just from random plants nearby. And then, of course, the blood bending, as she initially did on the rats and then moved on to people. Um, something you're able to do at the full moon, something powerful waterbenders can do. Um, so, again, I like that they introduced this new element, blood bending, but they gave a limitation for. Why haven't we seen it before? Oh, well, you need to be really powerful. And it needs to be at the full moon when a waterbender's powers are heightened anyway. Um, so that makes it believable that this is a new variation of, of bending that form that we already know of. So that's really cool. And again, the way that here we see Katara, as you said, she's trying to connect with um, this piece of her culture that had been taken away, um, trying to connect with another Southern waterbender and it's horrifying for her to realize that she is the person that's abducting these Fire Nation people. That's also a crucial thing. Like a lot of the season is more of that humanization of the Fire Nation people. Hama's mindset is all Fire Nation people need to pay, not just the warriors who came and attacked the Water Tribe and tried to destroy that culture and destroy those people. It needs to be every single person that has a Fire Nation emblem or dresses in red. They need to be destroyed. And of course, we see that that is very wrong. The gang goes against that. Katara absolutely goes against that. And she also refuses to utilize until her hand is forced to utilize this new power. She says that's like having that sort of control over somebody else is terrifying to her. And that gives us real insight into who Katara is mm -hmm. as a person. That's just not a line that she wants to cross or would normally cross. We'll get to that. Um, but overall... It's great in terms of the lore and world building, great in terms of the character uh, stuff for Katara. Uh, it's, yeah, it's incredible. The way that they just went 
and did a full-on horror episode in Avatar. Oof. Mm-hmm. He's a yeah. kid. I was I was just Very, I was yeah, not expecting that. Shout out to uh Tress McNeil for incredible voice work as Hama. Just incredible performance. Just a one-off only appearance. Incredible. Now on to season three, episode nine, Nightmares and Daydreams. I like this episode. What do you do you like this episode? Yes. This yes, is what I'm let's saying. Go. it's again, I mean, to your role, this is I mean, this is a filler-ish episode. It's really just focusing on Aang and his sort of anxieties and insecurities around facing the uh the Fire Lord finally. But it's just such a fun episode. It's beautiful. It pays a bunch of homages to a bunch of different animes as well. It draws a lot of inspiration from that. We get a sick Momo and Appa fight. That is just incredible. So beautiful. And yeah, and Aang tripping out and being talked to by his pets and all of that. I love the the, the thing where Aang is like trying to hear reason and it goes one by one on each of their faces, just trying to talk to him. And then it goes to Appa and he's talking to him too. <laughs> it, that was so probably, when I was a kid, that was probably the funniest joke in the entire show was them <laughs> cutting to Appa and Appa just talking normally. He's like, you really need to get some rest, Aang. <laughs> it's so beautiful. And it still hits as like adults. Like yeah, the comedy in the show is really, really good. Um, so that's beautiful. I also like everyone else as they try to help Aang. Again, like it comes from their personalities, the way they try to do it. Katara's doing a nice soothing, hot yoga. Toph is doing the hardcore back massage with the rock pillars. Sokka does a goofy thing with putting on the Wang Fire beard and trying to therapy for ang um so this was a great in getting to see that and again feeling the gravity of this kid this child who hasn't even been awake from the iceberg for a year who's only 12 years old the last of his people the avatar all the hopes of the world on him of course my man's gonna be freaking out right before he has to go face the fire lord so i like mm-hmm. that they did spend time giving us this episode that is goofy and fun and lighthearted, but is seriously giving us an insight into Aang and his troubles, even though he's the most powerful person out there. It's not like this is going to be Breeze. He's still worried about it. And so I like that we got to see that. Yeah, and in in parallel, this isn't a direct parallel between Zuko and Aang, but a little bit. They're both sort of spiraling in their own minds in a way, because Zuko is also sort of just out of it himself, going back and forth about whether or not he's wanted at a meeting, at a big war meeting that his father's holding because he wasn't invited specifically. And Azula's like, of course you're invited. You're the prince. It's probably just something that they wouldn't even have to say. Like, of course. And he's going back and forth. He's like, I'm not going to go. I should go. I'm not going to go. And he's just like out of his mind over something that ultimately is not important. Like, of course he could show up. He's the prince and he knows that, but he doesn't want to assume. And he's just sort of driving himself crazy. And eventually, of course he does go. And the contents of this meeting are very important, but they don't, illuminate that right away we don't learn about why it's so important until the very end of the season like all the way there but of course that gives us retroactively looking at this episode we learn that this is part of the reason why he makes such a big decision in the next episode that we'll get to and why he just ultimately changes sides of course this meeting has a big impact on him uh i just love the humor in this episode i love the imagery the animation how they sort of take this scary fire lord figure and they dumb him up a little bit i think that's fun to be this big goofy fat guy yelling at ang i think that's always fun to see um 
I love the imagery of the island that they're on setting up the day of the black sun invasion because it's it's very it kind of feels very like uk islands kind of area like the cliff sides that they have there the big rolling great green fields and the koala sheep which i mean i watched this at alexa's house and she's seen this whole show probably four times and when i got to this episode she goes she, every time she'll go oh the koala sheep it's so cute <laughs> they're so fluffy so just the com they pick the perfect animals to combine in the show it's just genius they always know what to do to make the best animal for any certain situation i think that's fantastic but i love this episode even though a lot of people apparently don't because it is goofy it is funny and it is uh like very little happens story-wise very very little happens story-wise at least explicitly and so it's, it's mostly about ang just freaking out and just trying to deal with it and so i think for a lot of people this is a, like a low on their list but i have a good time i enjoy it i do too i think again i think it's necessary you got to see him freaking out to truly get into the mindset of the mid-season finale, the day of Black Sun, the invasion, and the eclipse, which I I was trying to look through this to see if they had framed it initially as the season finale, because I wonder how many kids watched this and thought it was actually going to be the series finale, because you could, like, going into this, that's how mm-hmm. they portray it. Of course, yeah. if you had remembered... Oh, Azula learned about the eclipse. Um, then you would obviously know. Okay, this is not going to be it. Um, and if you were still anticipating Zuko's change, but you could have thought, oh, Zuko's redemption is going to happen here in the invasion. Like that's when he's going to turn and save and help like our guys fight Ozai. So I feel like there were many kids that thought, oh, this was it. This was a series finale, and I think that's so cool. Like I love the fake, the fake finales are where they make it seem like in Breaking Bad. Um, you could cut that off. Like if you cut off Hank sitting on the toilet, you just cut that off and show to somebody, you could just make them think Breaking Bad had a happy ending when everything was cleaned up, all the uh, loose ends were tied. You could just do that. This episode yeah. going into it, you could also feasibly think, oh, this could be it. This is where they do the invasion. Everything will get neatly put away. Everything will uh, be full circle. We bring back all these characters that we've seen throughout the series. The Bayou Benders, they come back. The Boulder and the Hippo, Pipsqueak and Duke. The Inventor and his kid, Tio, um, and Haru and his father. And we get all these characters coming back. So that gives it an element of like, oh, this is big. This is major. Um, can I just take a moment and say, yeah. can you imagine Breaking Bad ended with Hank on the toilet? <laughs> I'm saying you cut that out. You I know, but like, no, could you imagine that was just the last thing to him? He just sits on the toilet. He doesn't read anything, and then he just gets up and walks out, and then the show is over. And that's it. And they have no explanation. And then Vince Gilligan has to come on and be like, "Guys, the whole thing is subversion. You think he's gonna go to the book behind him that was left to him by by Gail Bedecker, but he doesn't. Like he just." <laughs> This is a side note. I thought that was a really funny thing. That made me laugh. Hilarious. <laughs> well, but yeah, man, what a missed opportunity. Vince Gilligan could have had a masterpiece if he just had, just had Hank sitting on the toilet. Sitting on the toilet. All right, back to Avatar. Um, where were we at? <laughs> so the world building of this these episodes. So we get confirmation explicitly that Aang's Seventh chakra is closed, so he cannot enter the Avatar state. We haven't seen it at all in season three. 
we know in season or episode one, when Katara was doing the healing thing um, and was hovering around the wound, that he got a spasm and sort of the flashback to him getting shot there. So that's showing, okay, the seven chakra something is not right about it. It's tied to that wound, but it's not operational right now. Mm. So that's key. Um, we also see more Fire Nation world building. We see the gates of Azulon, which are protecting the capital, um, or the bay that leads up to the capital. Which are cool, by the way. They are so cool. Really wicked awesome. Because, I mean, imagine building a gate, a real gate that's that size. It's impossible. But having it be a, just a giant net that can catch on fire is awesome. For sure. Very Fire see, Nation. We see also very Fire Nation is their royal palace is in the center of a dormant volcano. That's just so cool. That's where I'd put it. uh, For real. I mean, if you're going to do any place, do that. Um, We also see submarines are invented. Sokka, once again, a mastermind inventor as well as strategist. He says, make a submarine. And the inventor guy goes, okay, gotcha. And they do. And they look like whales, which is really cool because that will trick any of the Fire Nation people. They're looking down on the gates of Azulon with the nets up and flaming, and they just see whales going under it. They're like, oh, okay. Also, isn't that sweet? They didn't have the net go all the way to the bottom of the ocean because they wanted the fish to be able to go through. Oh, It's beautiful. Fire, fire, the Fire Nation is still good. Wow. They still got good in them. They do. But anyway, I like that his submarines are, just as a side note, they're based on waterbending. Like, you need waterbenders to operate them because it just shows that industrialization does occur in this show. But it is very much, like, outside of the Fire Nation, it's very much bending-based. And then you go to the Fire Nation, you see their industrialization is very much just general industrialization. Like, anyone can operate it. You don't need to be a firebender. You don't need to be a bender at all. Anyone can operate the tanks. Anyone can operate the blimps. Anyone can operate the big zeppelins or the drill or the big whatever the worm tank thing is that in the chase in Season 2, whatever that thing is. You just need general industrial like engineers to operate these things. But when you have another person come up with something, it is very much bending based because it's just it's very much easier to invent to a submarine that is just entirely based on water bending. Like, of course. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Um, then we also get to see another world building element, the glider for Aang. We didn't mention it in episode one, but... He, when he accepts, okay, I need to lay low, pretend that the Avatar is dead, his glider, which got all messed up in the storm when he was heading over um, to the Fire Nation, Princess Yue said, I will let the the waters calm down so you can survive. Uh, his glider did not survive, so he puts it in the lava flow, and it burns it's up. Burn and fire. Exactly. And in this episode, he gets another glider with, with a snack, snack compartment. Perfect. It's amazing. <laughs> So that's really cool. Um, so this episode is another, I think, Sokka-based episode. I think he gets the most character development here because no one else really has an arc in this. Sokka does. He starts out, I mean, this is his invasion plan, right? He told Hakoda, his father, to go grab all these people from all the different corners of the world. And when he's finally up there about to give his presentation about how the invasion will go, he's about to deliver those plans. He fumbles it, bro. He flubs. He gets anxiety. He messes up. He tries to recount the entire show from the beginning. He says, let me start in the beginning. So we came across Avatar in the ice thing. And then we opened it up. And then I didn't really like him. But then I came to love it. Like my man tries to do all that. Um, And so he failed as a leader at that moment in time. 
Hakoda had to step up and be like, here's how the actual plan is going to go. He kills it. He gets the people all riled up and pumped and ready to go for this invasion. The hope of the world is on their shoulders. This is it. This is where they take back all their homes and everything. So Hakoda did great. Sokka, of course, looks up to his father. We know that. He wanted to be a leader and a warrior like his father. But in this moment, he failed. Later in this episode, when Hakoda gets injured, Sokka needs to be the one to step up and reorganize the troops, gets them back into formation, has them charge on towards the actual palace. So he gets the plans back on track. And so I like that little arc where he was in the beginning feeling very down about mm-hmm. himself, lost that confidence in himself as a leader. But then when it came to it, he was able to step up when his father was not able to, and he was able to lead the forces forward. So I think that was a beautiful little arc there. Yeah, I think this whole episode is incredible. It's very much just we're attacking. We're attacking the Fire Nation. Like it's this two-parter episode is, is reminds me of the very end of season two when it's the Earth King episode. The first half of that is just one just big action sequence. And this whole episode is kind of like that too with some character moments in between. And I just love a lot of the animation, a lot of the creative things they do. I love bringing back the Bayou Benders and uh, the guy in the big swamp monster thing, but it's seaweed this time because he was in the ocean, of course. And he's attacking things, and they're using these weird tank things to... The, the little centipede things, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. That are yeah. earthbender based. Caterpillar or centipede. Another yeah. another yeah. machine that they've invented that is based on bending is the mm-hmm. earthbenders who are controlling this thing that they use to just crush other things. And they have... I just love the idea of them trying to charge up this hill and they're always new and new problems and they're solving them like uh, one at a time. Like they get through the initial onslaught and then they're getting bombarded by the battlements on either side of the wall, and they have to go take care of that. And so Katara rides Appa and starts, and uh, Sokka throws bombs in them to blow them up. And they go one by one, and they destroy each one. And then they do the little fake out where Hakoda hops in one, and then there's just an explosion in the whole thing. And so you think Hakoda's dead for like half a second, and then he hops out and he's just injured. Mm-hmm. And so Hakoda's out, and that sets up Sokka being the big hero of the day for this second half of this episode and the rest of the next episode as he takes over as the leader and they're just charging forward and ang is just like running around just trying to find the fire lord <laughs> i love when he gets to the fire nation palace he opens the door like he blows it open he goes hello is anyone home <laughs> he's yeah. just like just trying to find whoever's there and it's all just such great setup we have zuko who is sort of we see him doing things that he would normally do that he's been doing the rest of the season. He leaves a note for May. He's moving around like he's like trying to leave, of course. So you kind of get this impression that like, oh, Zuko has somehow had some kind of change of heart, but we're not sure what it is yet until we get that full on verbal confirmation in the next episode that we'll get to. And we have Iroh who has this guard who was just very nice to him. Who was voiced by Serena Williams for yeah, no reason. so weird. I was just looking out of nowhere. <laughs> Of the episode on IMDb and saw that and I was like, why? What? Why? It's very odd. And yeah, it's I, only one episode. Like she only just voiced this character for one episode. Maybe her that's kids like the show she was like a fan of it way back when it was going on. It was like, oh, let me lend a voice to it. Fair I mean, enough. that's super cool, but just yeah. very random. Very weird. But anyway, we get Iros telling her to not be there later in the day, which is good foreshadowing for what Zuko walks into, which is Iroh's gone, the guards are all knocked out. This big, just huge mess is left behind from Iroh's wake because he's just so 
powerful now. He's just so jacked. He's just so built. He's huge. He was already powerful beforehand. So you see Iroh is still strong and he's on the loose. So yes. Iroh has been set free and we don't see him again until the very end, which is very sad. But we see him again. No, but I think that was a very effective choice to do. Like, no, the of way, course. Again, the way that each like season just leaves you hanging for something about Zuko's redemption. And that's beautiful. Like even when he does turn, he's on the good side now. There's still that lingering element of, oh, he needs to make amends with Iroh. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's beautiful. And we'll get to that moment. But I did want to bring up Aang and Katara. There's a big moment here where Aang, right before he's about to go leave and go after Ozai, try to find him. He kisses Katara full on. This is not a hallucination, unlike the previous episode when he said, baby, you're my forever girl, and tried to smooch Katara. <laughs> that was so yeah, good. Dude, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, this one was a real kiss. Katara blushes at, at it. Aang swooped away right afterwards. Um, and so we just leave that thread hanging there because, of course, it's a battle for the rest of the thing. And so now we know that they did have their first full-on mutual. Well, Aang certainly initiated it, so it's obvious what his intentions were. This isn't like the cave where it was like, oh, we have to do this to get out. Mm. This was clearly he does this because he wants to do it. He likes Katara. No mistaking it anymore. So that's a yeah. big step forward in their relationship. And in the second part of this two-parter in the Eclipse, Zuko and Ozai have their showdown. Dylan, what did you think about this scene? I love it, dude. I love yeah. it so much. <laughs> I love that we get to see the capitalization on Iroh teaching Zuko lightning redirection. And so he redirects Ozai's lightning back at him. And Ozai has this moment like, oh, fuck. <laughs> For real. He has that look on his face. I'm going to free Uncle Iroh from his prison. And I'm going to beg for his forgiveness. He's the one who's been a real father to me. <laughs> That's just beautiful. Maybe he can pass down to you the ways of tea and failure. But I've come to an even more important decision. I'm going to join the Avatar. And I'm going to help him defeat you. Really? Since you're a full-blown traitor now and you want me gone, why wait? I'm powerless. You've got your swords. Why don't you just do it now? Because I know my own destiny. Taking you down is the Avatar's destiny. Goodbye. Coward! You think you're brave enough to face me, but you'll only do it during the eclipse. If you have any real courage, you'll stick around until the sun comes out. Don't you want to know what happened to your mother? I, I love the whole setup is like they Zuko finds him in the eclipse and Zuko has swords and Ozai doesn't and none of them neither of them have firebending so Zuko could kill him right now and, and Ozai like acknowledges that he's like if you want to seize power now do it strike me down kill me and Zuko's like that's not why I'm here I'm here to tell you that I'm leaving you and I'm going to help the avatar because he has to be the one that defeats you because he's come to that realization he knows that is the Avatar's job and that if he he attacks, it's just not his place. It's not his destiny to to attack and kill his own father. It's his destiny to teach Aang firebending and to help Aang defeat Ozai himself. And and then the firebending comes back and they just have a great little back and forth little battle and then Ozai dips out. Yeah, I think the implications quickly. of that though is so important. The mm -hmm. 
just the tiniest sliver of sun comes back from the eclipse. And then Ozai and all his power just starts immediately shooting lightning at Zuko. My man yeah. was going to kill Zuko. Ozai doesn't know, at least to our knowledge, like no one knows what Iroh knows about redirecting lightning. Yeah, he's, he's certainly prepared to kill his son right here. And then Zuko catches it, is about to point him back, but he it hits like the ground beneath Ozai, which I don't think is a mistake. Zuko clearly could have pointed at Ozai, caught him off guard because no way he's expecting lightning to come back at him. Could have killed Ozai right then and there, but instead shoots it towards the ground, as you said, because it is the Avatar's destiny to do this. His destiny is not to kill Ozai and overthrow him. It is to help the Avatar by teaching him firemending. Um, so that he can confront Ozai. So that was beautiful. We also get more revelations about the Storm and Zuko alone episodes. Mm-hmm. So Zuko, as he's about to leave, Ozai tries to keep him there a little bit longer, right? Trying to stall for the eclipse to finish so he can kill his own son. And he says, Don't you want to know where your mother is? By the way, Mark Hamill in this there's so many moments where it like gets to that Joker point, and you're like, oh, just true evil. Yeah, it is very close. Um, but he is like, yo, I know, don't you want to know about your mother? We learned that Ursa was banished because she was the one that was really going to overthrow and like kill Azulon to make sure that Zuko didn't get killed. Because presumably Ozai would have obeyed Azulon's request to kill Zuko. It was Ursa who was like, no, we need to make this plan and kill Azulon. Uh, and then another Ozai, example of why Ozai is an idiot. What do you mean? This was his the big overthrow of Azulon, where Ozai assumes power ahead of Iroh. It was just Ursa's idea. It was just Ursa's idea. Like Ozai's entire intention is remember they have that great scene. I think it's in season two. Is they're at Azulon's side, and Ozai's he's like, "You should let me do it." And Azulon's like, "No." And that was Ozai's entire plan was just to try and just convince him face to face. Hey, just let me do it. That was his entire plan, which isn't stupid. There's no right. planning whatsoever. There's and, also, well, there's the potential that Ozai could be lying here and could could have just banished Ursa because he didn't, I don't know, want her around anymore. He didn't want her to know somehow that he was the one that overthrew Azulon. And so it was like putting it on her, like had her actually do the action so that technically he didn't do it. Um, he just had to assume the throne because he was the next in line. That's what happened. Um, but then I think it's more poetic to have ursa be the one who kills azulon and then goes into banishment just to save zuko so i feel like that is the truth right well i actually i do know it's the truth because they do talk about that in the comics that the the spinoff comics that they do but i mean i I won't get too deep into it but yeah it is the truth like that is what happens well she she does kill him i feel like he would have like he was he had to like what? Why wouldn't he have thought of that? He had to have. I mean, the way that because he's people, stupid. He I'm telling you, had to have thought it was of that. okay. It was Azula's idea for the whole invasion, the whole response to the invasion, because she's the one who learned about it. She's the one who took down Bossing Say, and she's the one who come up with this whole plan where Ozai waits in a chamber that is a secondary chamber, not the primary chamber, and then Azula waits in the primary chamber and distracts him so that they can't get to Ozai. That is all Azula's plan. That is another instance where Ozai doesn't do shit. He just sits in a chair and just waits. Like, he really does nothing. He is a powerful bender. He's a very, very powerful bender. But he can't think for shit. That's true. It all went to him being wicked and evil. He Uh, is an evil, powerful bender that is too dumb to actually do anything himself. (laughs) For real. He was, yeah, not 
not the brightest light bulb, but very dumb. Certainly a very vicious man to again do what he did to Zuko here. And then even that like, twisting the knife by revealing, oh, I kinda would have let you die, but <laughs> your mother saved you. And so as thanks for that, I banished her so you would never see her again. Mm-hmm. Um and then of course burned your own face for like we see that as well. Zuko being like, yo, that was completely cruel and uncalled for. There's no justification for burning your 14-year-old son's face just for speaking out of turn, um, which, again, was justified because he was like, we cannot sacrifice a bunch of rookie Fire Nation soldiers on the front line. Like, that is that is cruel. Um, and Ozai only thinks in terms of power and respect. And so he saw mm-hmm. forcing his son into submission as teaching him a lesson in respect, which is just demented. So I like that we also get to see Zuko finally realizing not only that, like that was terrible behavior on Ozai's part, but he also is disillusioned with the the propaganda that the Fire Nation's been pushing about, oh, this is a war to spread goodness and to spread the wealth and prosperity of the Fire Nation. He's like, the people around the world hate us because look at all the damage we've done to them. I mean, mm-hmm. they have scars on them and on their lands just like he did on himself because of the Fire Nation. It's just a lovely moment. Great writing, impeccable character development. It is the the best way we could have seen Zuko have that turnaround is in this moment where he gets to physically do it to his father and give him the fuck you and and leave (laughs) on his own. A hundred percent. And that's, it's beautiful because that is the closure. I mean, we get a final scene of them in the final episode, but like this is the crescendo of their dynamic and, Zuko bursting out of the shadow of needing his father's love and approval. Here, he flat out rejects it because it's been a poison to him, not Get a salvation. Fucked, it's lovely. God, it's just so good. So beautiful. Uh, I like seeing Aang and Sokka and Toph, and they're in those sort of cave tunnels, which I think is just fantastic that the whole dynamic of they had to get through here, and they need all three of them to do it because Toph is the one who can sense really well and figure out what the proper way to go. That there's a big metal dome over yada yada that way that there he's probably there and then they have to use ang to paraglide over that sort of big lava cavern that is there for no reason and it all capitalizes on that twist that ozai's not there azula's there and we have that whole dynamic where azula is just toying with them and just distracting them and doing nothing but that just because it's an eight minute eclipse and so she's just trying to buy the time for that mm-hmm. eight minutes and i love that sokka is the one who fucks it up because he's after this, recognizing what she yeah. is doing yeah. yeah he has this whole episode where he is trying to be a great leader and he's doing a pretty good job up until this point like he's leading them to victory at this moment and he, his emotions get in his way when azula brings up suki and he just can't help himself he just gets too distracted by it and he it fucks everything up like it ruins everything and they miss the end of the eclipse and Sokka has a big moment where he feels like he's a bad leader and that you know sets him up to make him want to prove himself wrong in the finale which we'll get to but I just like that moment a lot right and I also like this is another episode which ends in their failure they had this plan that they thought was going to be the best way to finish the job to be the fire lord and it ends in failure. And you see all the adults, like Akoda, them recognizing it. The massive airships, we get that reveal, which was amazing. Not the war balloons, but these massive warships. Um, that was fantastic. 
and then they recognize, oh, they're going to go bomb our our submarines. There's going to be no way out. And so Hagoda and the other adults are like, we're going to stay behind. We're going to be prisoners. You kids have to go and continue the war effort. And oh, it just pained my heart so much to see Aang crying, looking at all of them being like, thank you mm. so much for your bravery, for your courage, for your sacrifices for doing this. I'll make it up to you. Once again, Aang feels like he failed and let these people down, that he wasn't living up mm-hmm. to his destiny. And once again, these people are going to be hurt because he wasn't able to do it. It's so tragic. Oh, another beautiful way that we see a major battle and a major loss for the gang. So good. Mm-hmm. Our analysis on the second half of Season 3 of Avatar The Last Airbender continues on Part 2 of the series. Thank you.